can guarantee that within five miles of your front door is somewhere you've never been before. Go there for the first time and you are being an explorer. And I think that's a pretty exciting way to be able to be a traveler. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, Alistair Humphreys comes back on the show. You might recall back in 2022, he and I talked about making a living as an adventurer. And way back in 2019, he talked about his book, My Midsummer Morning, which chronicled his experience of learning the violin and walking across Spain as a busker. Today, we talk about his newest book, Local, which recounts how he spent a full year exploring the 20 square kilometers just around his home in England. This adventure was, in fact, an intensified version of a micro-adventure, a term Alistair coined to describe short outdoor adventures near one's home. He actually wrote a book about that concept back in 2014. Today, he and I talk about what it's like to see wildness close to home and how getting to know and love a place nearby gives you context for understanding and appreciating places that are far away. We talk about paying attention to one's landscape at home and being curious about everything, even in a largely suburban area that doesn't feel very exotic. We talk about how post-industrial areas can contain nature in surprising ways and how the changing seasons can transform your experience of a single place. We start by talking about how I'm always jealous every time Alistair comes up with a new concept for a book. Let's listen in. Every time you come out with a new book, I think, damn, I wish I had that idea. That's a great idea for a book. <laughs> this is like not even the, 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 the first time. It's like the second or third time you come out with a book and it's like, that's a great idea. I wish I'd had that idea. So why don't you talk about your new book, Local, what it's about and where the idea came from and how you made it happen? Okay, thank you. So I think the the important brief backstory is that I spent quite a lot of years chasing huge adventures. So I cycled around the world. I rode across the Atlantic Ocean, um, crossed the empty quarter desert. So did sort of big, traditional, macho type, take over the world sort of adventures, which were fantastic and wonderful. But they then led me on to starting to do what I call micro adventures, which was trying to encourage real people with real busy lives and real constraints of time or money to adopt the idea that it's better to have some adventure than no adventure. And so to try and find short, simple, local, affordable adventures close to where you live. So I spent quite a lot of years encouraging people to run, cycle, camp, swim in the, well, relatively close to home, which then brings me down to this idea, which is taking it even smaller. Um, And it was roughly came from two ideas. One was that I don't really feel comfortable flying to go have adventures anymore. So I wanted to try and find a way to explore close to home. Um, but I, I live in kind of suburbs, edgelands, just out of the city. Uh, I don't really like where I live. So um, I wasn't that enthused by where I live, which is also then becomes part of the relevance. And the final thing was that I wanted to start trying to find a way to help get more people to pay attention to the nearby nature and to find wildness close to home and to try and suggest that you don't need to live in the a log cabin in Alaska to find a little bit of nature. You just probably need to go to the end of your street and pay attention. So with that backstory, I bought the local map for where I live. All of the UK is divided up into um maps that um and i guess whatever country you're in it's the kind of map that you'd use to go for a hiking trip i think for america they're the 
one to 24,000 topo maps is the technical name. Um, so it's roughly 20 kilometers by 20 kilometers, so about 12 miles by 12 miles. A pretty small area, you know, you could cover that in a car in 10, 15 minutes. You could run across it in a couple of hours. It's not a big area. And I challenged myself to spend a whole year only on this small area. And as someone who loves traveling far and wide, right from the start, I really was worried that I was not going to enjoy this at all and would find it very claustrophobic. But I thought it would be interesting to explore my neighborhood. And then to try and put some structure on it, um, the map is divided up into one kilometer grid squares. I guess there's some sort of latitude, longitude type thingy, but essentially they're just 400 pale blue grid squares laid over the map, each measuring one kilometer by one kilometer. And the challenge I set myself was to go out once a week for a year and explore one of these grid squares in as much thorough detail as I could make myself do. So my idea was to go to a grid square, one kilometre by one kilometre, and to see everything that was in that square. So to walk every footpath, walk every street if it was in a town, walk around every little bit of woodland just to see everything that was there, and to notice, to pay attention, to be curious, and to see if I could find nature and wildness close to home, and whether I could foster and build some sort of connection for this place that I live that didn't really love. And when I started, I gave myself permission that if this idea is too boring and too restrictive, I'm allowed to quit and go come up with a more fun idea. But uh, I quickly realized that actually there was so much on this map, on any map. And the more you pay attention, the more there is. And the more you slow down and notice, the bigger your map starts to feel. So once a week, free year, rain or shine, I went to one random little grid square in my boring little suburban landscape, and I tried to see everything that was there. All right. You you talk about, you have some great quotes early on. You talk about um, the idea of being amazed by everything. You bring a lot of parallels about distant travel back to home. You state that you want to find adventure, nature, wildness, silence, and surprise in this area close to your home. And you really want to bring the attention that travel imbues um, closer to home, because I, I think sometimes we really pay attention to our environment when we're away from home, but then suddenly we're in our home environment and we're all, we've almost trained ourselves to be blind to certain aspects of that. And so you, you said that basically, uh, I think, or maybe you quoted somebody else saying that the unfolding of a map is always the start of a great adventure. And so when you started unfolding and jumping into those little squares, what did you find? I think my plan at the start was to try and put on my traveler's mindset. As you just said, when you go to a foreign country, everything becomes interesting. You know, how the grocery store is laid out, the taxi driver, you want to talk to them because they're like the most fascinating person you've ever seen. Whereas when you're at home, like, there, yeah, it's boring. I know all this. So I wanted to try and adopt that enthusiastic, curious traveler's mindset to my local area. And then at the start, I thought what I was going to go looking for was tiny bits of adventure, you know, interesting places to ride my bike, maybe somewhere to camp, that sort of stuff. But actually what really started to catch my attention was the nature and uh, the wildlife and the plants and the insects and the birds. And I, I didn't know anything about any of this sort of stuff, but I just started taking notes on what I saw. And then when I came home, I'd do a lot of Googling about what I'd learned. And so I ended up spending 
probably equal amount of time back home on Google and Wikipedia learning about all the stuff that I'd seen out there. So um, the things that I saw, I'd guess that were good and bad. So you might think that the sort of broken down warehouses and the huge dumps of garbage and the um, smelly burnt out cars might be bad. But actually, I found that I love that sort of stuff. I found that so fascinating, this industrial, post-industrial wastelands, places that I never go in my normal life. I got really interested in that and noticing how birch trees were starting to rewild these old broken down factories. So I started to be fascinated by that. And then good, bad flip side again, I thought when I would get out to a grid square that was green rolling farmland, you know, traditional sort of English green rolling fields. My first thought was, oh, great. I'm in the countryside, lovely green English fields. This is the land that I know and was brought up. In. But as I paid more attention through the year, I came to realize how lacking in nature our landscape is. And although it's green, in many ways, it's a green desert. And so the, the, the learn, learning about how much nature has been lost in our landscape was became quite an important part of the year for me and something I hadn't really anticipated at the beginning. Yeah, it's interesting, the idea of the green desert. You said something about, you know, we, we sort of live in an age where we sort of scrape off all the native foliage and then we put potted plants out to remind us that nature exists. Uh, we create golf courses and, and you came across a golf course or two during your time that are sort of created to sort of give an a semblance of nature without really necessarily belonging to the natural environment where they actually are. Uh, and so how did, how did this manifest? It sounds like maybe that was sort of one of the surprises of your adventure is that in the places where you thought you would find nature, you found less of it. And so what are some examples of, of green deserts that you found in your, in your area? Um, well, two that I could think of immediately is there seems to be a trend in Britain for fake plastic garden lawns. So rather, especially rather than having the hassle of trying to make your garden look green and beautiful because you want a lovely green natural garden, people just put down this sort of green plastic astroturf, like pretend grass and cover their entire gardens in this stuff. So a total and utter removal of the natural world in order to create an artificial thing that looks like a green, lovely nature. And of course, this stuff is terrible for insects and the the, uh, the wildlife that our planet depends on. Um, so there's that aspect. And then I really came to learn a lot about farming and land use this year, which had never really crossed my mind before, to just realise what a vast amount of land we use for farming um, and how our, the choices of our diet impact the scale of this land that's used and then how much of that leads to degraded soil and river pollution. Um, and I became quite um, repulsed, I suppose, by industrial farming and, and our choices of food. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty that that was an angle that I definitely had not anticipated when I started this. I thought I was going to write a travel book. In the end, I wrote a bit of a sort of nature book, sort of a complaining about the state of the world slash hoping here's how we fix it sort of book, which is not what I'd imagined. But I think maybe that's a good thing about going out to explore your neighborhood is that it just forces you to slow down, really pay attention and find whatever interests you. And I'm sure if you did it, you'd be interested in different things to me. Um, but it was just a really good way of going 
deeper and deeper and deeper rather than our perhaps our modern society tendency to just spread ourselves fast and thin and and it was good to go really deep and slow down yeah it's an interesting constraint to sort of force yourself off of the obvious places to go you know i think that if you were to go for a walk in a place that's near to home you or me both we'd find a, a hiking trail you know we'd find a place that has been cultivated for that even if it's not the raw original landscape then it's probably been probably been maintained in such a way that it that it's pleasurable whereas when you're experiment is just a giant square and anything is fair game and you end up stumbling into environments that you might ha not have done otherwise. I did this in, when I was researching my book, Souvenir, I did this in, in Paris. I walked down every street of the fifth arrondissement, and I suddenly realized that forcing myself to go down every street made me see that city in a way that wasn't designed for my tourist convenience. I was walking down industrial streets and, and residential streets and all sorts of, of environments. And so you talked about how sometimes these industrial or post-industrial uh, uh, environments were sort of fun. And I would imagine there's a child life fun to that. Like I, I remember sneaking into old warehouses when I was a kid and just your imagination really flies there. Uh, and But then it occurs to me that actually farms are industrial environments too, especially in industrial farms, um, you know, big extractive farms. And so I guess, how were you surprised sometimes by these industrial environments you know, quarries and, and old factories and, and other things that haven't been designed for nature walks, but through which you found yourself walking or bicycling. Well, I, I think I enjoyed those places because there is that little element of adventure, maybe naughtiness that, oh, maybe I'm not perhaps supposed to be here. And certainly for me, unfamiliarity. I grew up in a very rural part of Britain. And then I've lived in the middle of, say, London, so big cities. But I Never, but I've never had a job that takes me anywhere near a warehouse or a factory or anything industrial. And and I found I found this sort of falling down nature of things fascinating because there's some obviously other kids have been there. There's like smashed beer bottles and there's graffiti spray canned around and smashed glass. Um, but there's also plants starting to grow through the broken bricks and um the birch trees they're always the first ones to start to to come back and the pink fireweed and then you get loads of birds and insects because they're not being disturbed there they're they're almost getting left alone much more than they are in say the farmlands which look green but are actually uh far, perhaps far less amenable to wildlife so um yeah i found those really interesting especially the an another aspect that i found interesting is the where does a town or city end and where does a countryside begin? And that sort of edge lands, the liminal space, the boundaries between the two um, is, is something that I'm not particularly familiar with. I guess in a car, you just zoom out of the town and then you're in the country. So I found this in-between areas very interesting. And as particularly, sorry, not particularly, but another aspect would be that there's nobody in these places generally. So it was quite nice to just get a sense of stillness and solitude as well so yeah i liked that part too yeah you you talked at one point about uh uh there's going to the serengeti but there's also going to the urban fringe and i, and I want to get back to the idea of what sorts of wildlife you can find in the urban fringe but first i want to talk about the idea of how quickly nature can reclaim places because i lived in korea for years and one of the most one of the wildest places in korea is the dmz that separates North Korea and South Korea and has really not been touched by man in a significant way um, in more than half a century. Um, and 
I'm pretty sure. Didn't you find a place that seemed wild in an interesting way? And it turns out to have formerly been a golf course, like not that long ago was a golf course. Can you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yes. There were, when you started that, I was thinking of two things you were going to go down. One, one square that I found that I really enjoyed. It just felt like a sort of African scrubland of bushes and small trees and all sorts of stuff to try and push through. I learned that was an old Victorian brick factory. So 200 years ago, that had been noisy and dirty and cement and noise and child labour and all this sort of good old Victorian stuff. And now it was quiet and wild and returning to nature. Um, and then the other was this golf course where it was... I I said I say that I like the warehouse and things. I was also on the search for sort of proper rural beauty. And I found a valley. It was about a mile or two long, um, sloping down to the bottom, lined with trees and bushes. It was also green and lovely. And I just thought this was fantastic. And I was standing there looking at it, thinking, wow, this is my favorite place on the map. I'm delighted to have found this. And two people came up behind me uh, walking their dogs. And they could clearly see that I was interested in this view and sort of pondering it. So they stopped and they talked to talk to me and they said, oh, it's such a shame, this valley, isn't it? What a shame. And I said, why is it a shame? It's fantastic. And they said, oh, well, it, it used to be a golf course. And then the golf course had to close down seven, 10 years ago. And now look at it. There's nothing here only nature. <laughs> and I found that so interesting because their perspective was, what a shame the golf course has gone. And my perspective was, wow, this is wonderful. Nature is returning and rewilding the land. So so that raised an issue that kept popping up time and again is, what is the correct use for a landscape, particularly one where there are tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of humans trying to live as well as nature and wildlife so what is the correct use of land that that was something that i found interesting to mull over as well yeah i think there's an element to which the way we see is often shaped by our environments um, because i know that people who live in dense uh, urban areas have they just sort of have a better intuitive sense for what is safe and what is not safe but then you take them out uh, to the countryside and and suddenly a wide open environment is sort of frightening to them. And I live in a in a semi-rural part of Kansas. And I remember when I took my parents to Mongolia, how they were used to seeing open landscapes, but our driver, who wasn't a scientist, he was just a former military guy driving our van, he would see step wolves like two miles away that we didn't see at all, even when he was telling us exactly where they were. And so he could see the landscape in a way that we couldn't. Um, even though we weren't fully given over to cities and we were trying our best, we couldn't fully see it. And it sounds like you saw this landscape and it appealed to you and you didn't recognize it as a place that had been a golf course not that long ago. And so I guess one challenge we have and one challenge you had um, is just sort of being able to appreciate what we see or even able be able to see what we see. And so how were you able, I know that you used the Seek app, which is a, which is a smartphone app that uh, helps you identify um, different types of flowers. I'm not sure if wildlife as well. I don't use it a whole lot, but how were you able to sharpen your vision as you went through a variety of landscapes in this small area around where you live so that you could see what was there as opposed to missing something because you're not used to looking in that way? Mm -hmm. So I did a few things. What One was I chose the grid square that I was going to each week, I chose via an online random number generator, because otherwise my tendency would have been to go to the woods and the hills and the places I always go to. So I I allowed the map to determine where I was going to go. And often it was a, 
landscape that oh, I'm not going to be that interested in today. So it's forcing me to go somewhere new. Um, I tried to make myself pay attention through apps like the Seek app, which taught me the names of plants and insects and things. And once you know the name of something, you then start to notice it more and you start to care for it more. Um, I used an app called Merlin, which listens to birdsong and tells you the name of what you're hearing. And I found that wonderful for starting to learn the calls of the birds and therefore to start to be interested in them and care for them as well. Um, I was really conscious that... um, yeah, as you said, it, there's so many things you don't see. I remember one week n- noticing that the bluebells had disappeared. The bluebells are beautiful in England in April time, and then they're gone, of course, because summer arrives and other things arrive. And I noticed that the bluebells had gone, and that made me realise that generally throughout the year, I was noticing things that appeared and not noticing things that had gone. And that was a reminder for me that you don't see everything. You only see what you choose to see to some degree. And I felt that was a potential shortcoming of, of me doing it alone. So what I tried to do was to write, just write notes of everything that I saw and then come home and use Google and Wikipedia as my professors. But one thing I often thought about um, slightly enviously is there's a lovely book by um, Alexandra Horowitz called, I think on looking and she walks around her city block in New York 11 times uh, with with a geologist who teaches her about the geology of the pavements in New York with a um, a um, a font, a typographer who talks about the fonts of everything you see. She does it with a dog, does it with a child. So these very different ways of looking. And I think that's a really fantastic thing that I wasn't doing. So I was just trying to take notes of stuff and then come home and teach myself later. Yeah, that's another book I wish I'd written. All of a sudden, I, yes. I, don't, even, I don't even know yeah. about it. But what a great, uh, what a great mm-hmm. concept for a book um, that just sort of illustrates what we're talking about in such a great way. You know, it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, and it feels like there were three patron saints in your book: uh, Henry David Thoreau, Annie Dillard, and Mary Oliver. I, I mean, that could just be my American eye finding these American people that you quoted a lot. But one thing that they have in common is that they're people who very much paid attention to nature and in a time when they didn't really use Google or the Seek app. And so how were these people, how did these people become patron saints, my word, not yours? But why did they keep recurring in your epigraphs, do you think? Well, I don't think they kept appearing because they had great knowledge necessarily. So um, they kept appearing um, because they had great curiosity. Um, Pay attention, be astonished, write about it or something along those lines. I think Mary Oliver says uh, in a more clever way than I could. But yeah, so it's their curiosity. And um, Annie Dillard's book, uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which I read actually when I was cycling through a middle of a Siberian winter, this sort of complete lack of just this emptiness. And I was reading a book which was just this woman tearing herself apart at the wonder of everything she was seeing. That book had a huge impression on me in my life when I I read that. And she was just furiously, violently enthusiastic about everything she sees. Um, Mary Oliver is very slow and still and deliberate uh things that i'm not i tend to just run around like an idiot so so i was trying to make myself slow down and then thoreau of course he went to live in his cabin in the woods for a year which in some ways i mean i would have loved to have just added an extra dimension to my thing by going to live in a cabin that would be great but essentially we were doing a similar sort of thing of just trying to 
simplify life and get to know our local area. And I think he was a good patron saint because he wasn't in a log cabin in the middle of the wilds of Alaska, was he? He was actually just on the outskirts of town <laughs> and he could pop into town sometimes and his mum would come out and bring him apple pies and things. So he was really observing nature in the seasons, but still also on the cusp, on the edge of of real normal life. So I, I appreciated um, him for that. You earlier in the conversation, you used just sort of this sense of naughtiness that you feel in going into abandoned factories, for example. But there was also a kind of a sense of naughtiness with the idea of right of way hiking, which my American audience might not understand as much as you. I mean, we really have such a private land as such an important ethos in rural places here. So um, talk about, I was surprised, I don't really know how the right of way works so this in, in the UK, so this will be educational for me, but but tell me about the right of ways, how you used them, and how sometimes you didn't have the right of right of way in the face of some landowners. Yeah, so the, the rights of access became an issue which fascinated me through the year and came to increasingly frustrate me. So... I'm going to briefly go through three versions of this. There's the Scandinavian version, the British version, and then the American version. I think looking at the three different ways that we access our land is really interesting. So um, for Scandinavia, first of all, they have the notion of Aleman's retin, every man's right, which roughly speaking gives every person the right to go wherever they want in the countryside not obviously in someone's garden, not through the middle of a farm past all the industrial machines, not walking through someone's cornfield. You can't light a fire in the middle of someone's cornfield and camping. So a bit of common sense, but for example, open prairie cattle land, of which I'm sure there's plenty where you live, you could just walk all over that, wherever you want. You're free to roam. You can forage, you can pick the berries, um, you can catch some fish, you're free to do anything. But with this right to roam comes an ingrained responsibility to take care of this land. You own the land. You sorry, you don't own the land, you, but you have a right to access on it, and you um, and you belong to it, and you'd better take good care of it. So I love that notion of rights built in with responsibility, and that's my sort of land access utopia. Then we move to Eng England and. England is very different to Scotland in terms of this. <laughs> Scotland has different rules on this, but we'll leave that apart for now. So England, where I did my thing, we have, I think, 140,000 miles of public footpaths in England. And these are historical paths um, originally going from settlement to settlement. Many of them are thousands of years old. Um, the ones that are hundreds of years old link the church to the market, for example. And they're all over the place. And they're a Right, and they go straight through the middle of farmers' fields, through farmers' yards, occasionally, occasionally even through someone's garden if it's quite big. But everyone has a right to these, and most of my roaming was done on those because it's a wonderful resource. However, only eight percent of the actual land of England is open to roaming around on, and um, over half our country is owned by less than 1% of the population. So generally, most of the country is off limits and it's private land. And in theory, therefore, that means you're not allowed to walk on it. Uh, I would try as much as possible to stay on the public footpaths, but I became increasingly frustrated by how many woods and lakes and streams and things that I wanted to go and explore, I was theoretically not allowed on 
Why wasn't I allowed? Because some rich person 500 years ago bought that wood and therefore I was excluded from it. And that started to increasingly annoy me as the year went by. So I take a fairly lax approach to that. And I would just generally think, I'm just going to go walk around that wood. Of course, I'm not going to cause any harm. Of course, if someone's working there, I won't disturb them. No one will know I've been there. I love this woodland. I'll look after it, but I'm going to walk around and therefore I'm going to be trespassing. And in Britain, there's a growing movement called the right to roam movement which is agitating for looser more open access laws more aligned to scandinavia where we will have more people out in nature hopefully caring for it being responsible for it um and therefore that involves some trespassing so that's the english version the american version of course involves uh, a stronger ethic on private land plus people with guns doesn't it so it's quite a different uh, different approach to access where you guys are yeah, no, literally, um, I do a lot of walking out here, but it's usually on the grid roads. It's on it's on the dirt roads, which can be quite nice. But even though the landscapes can be kind of big sky landscapes, we are getting more public trails here. But Kansas in particular, is there's not much public land in, in Kansas. And so um, that right to roam is something, and I, I love my neighbors mostly, but I don't know if I would wander across their property because they because who knows? You know, you, you hear a lot of gunshots around here. Um, so... Uh, how? So if so, if someone sorry if someone lives in a town near you and they don't own loads of fields, how do they get nature in their life? Well, um, sadly, often they don't, and I think that's something you address and you you address the the health benefits of getting in nature, which is something that is uh, historically anomalous. How little we get out of the house in the U.S. and probably in the U.K. too. Um, there's a great hiking trail near near where I live. Um, there, uh, there's a great there's a place called Conservatory Preserve that's not too far away. But oddly enough, you know, if I lived in a some parts of Oregon or California or New Hampshire, I would have much more hiking options. I think I have sort of there's there's a hiking option per county in a place like uh, Kansas, but not a wealth of them. Um, and sadly, I, like. Not to go off on a rant about building, but um, in the community where my parents live now, they built a little, speaking of Scandinavia, a little settlement called uh, New Stockholm because it's historically settled by Swedes, this part of Kansas. And these houses are designed to be experienced from the inside. The, the, the yards and the space between the houses and the sizes of the garages are just... Um, heartbreakingly strange ratio ratio wise in that these these houses are not designed to get people out of the houses they're designed to make people feel as comfortable as possible in the houses um actually you use a concept in your book there's this idea of oh the small here and the big here i think that sometimes we uh in the us and the uk maybe in lots of places we lose sight of the big here because we sort of throw ourselves into the small here. So since I learned of these concepts through me, could you tell me what the, what that means and how you experienced it and what that what the ramifications uh, can be of being too much into the small here without understanding the big here? I, th- I think the the essence of that would be that these houses, these self-contained homes that you're talking about, which I imagine are very lovely and there's no need to go anywhere, that's a small here and you can just be in there and you're entirely happy with that stuff that you have there and that's your small here and perhaps that's all you need but outside your front door the world is burning is we're on fire there's all these problems all around and uh, trying to imagine that your small here your little property is not an interconnected part of the bigger one is is kind of burying your head in the sand and um 
and isn't going to fix anything. But it's also quite sad because what's happening out there is really interesting as well. Um, what I found from my experience of this travel, this journey compared to big ones across continents was when I when I crossed big continents, of course, I loved seeing nature and I've been to Alaska and it's fantastic. I love all that. But I realize now I didn't really care. I mean, it was lovely, but I didn't really care that much about it. And when you watch a nature program with a, a poor old polar bear dying because of global warming, I watch that and I think, oh, that's sad. Someone should save those polar bears. And then I just kind of get on with my day. But now, this year, when I've been going out just three miles down the road and I see some trees being cut down to build a shopping centre or something uh, that um, sounds like a Joni Mitchell song, that it would just, that I care about that now. And I'm like, hey, this is not good. And if we keep doing this, then the whole world's going to be in big trouble. So by caring, it's prompted me in a way that travelling the world never did to care for my small here, to care for my community, which now therefore extrapolates into me caring a lot more about the the environment and nature in a world, in a way that actually being out in the world never did. And maybe that's hopeful because most people don't have the privilege to travel the world as I've done. But my hope from this book is that everyone can get out and explore their neighbourhood a little bit. And if we start to explore our neighbourhood and care for it, then well, if we all cared for our neighborhood, the world would be fine, wouldn't it? Actually, one interesting strategy that you employed, uh, there's the idea of being outside and moving around, but there's also the idea of being still. And so you you uh, challenge yourself to be still for an hour and people think, oh, great, still for an hour, I'll sit in the sun and read a book. But you didn't let yourself read a book. You didn't let yourself be distracted by anything but your environs. What was that like? How hard was it? What did you learn? Uh, did you enjoy it or not? <laughs> yes, yeah, so this this co this is based on an ancient Buddhist Sanskrit saying, which I learned from the internet, which says something along the lines of, "If you're too busy doing your emails to spend twenty minutes sitting on a log in in the woods, then you probably need to spend an hour sitting on a log in the woods." Um, and the the times I would do it was when I was feeling busy and frazzled, and I would think, ah. I don't have time to go explore this stupid map. I've got emails to send. And when I start thinking too much like that, I think, hang on, this is ridiculous. Slow down. So I would make myself go to the woods, but you could do this in a field. You could do it in your garden, anywhere at all where someone's not going to bother you. And you just, you put away your watch, you turn your phone onto airplane mode. So there's no distraction. You set a timer for one hour. And then for myself to avoid temptation, I would throw my phone <laughs> out of arm's reach. And then I'd just sit on this log for an hour because I, if I was thinking, oh, I'm too busy. I felt that just willfully spending an hour might help me calm down. And it was a fascinating experience. I and mean, this is heading very much towards a sort of mindfulness exercise. But within the scope of an hour, I mean, within two minutes, I was completely bored. And then I'd be have 10 brilliant ideas for award-winning novels, but I didn't have a piece of paper to write them down. So they'd zip out of my head again. And then I'd get bored and then I'd get sleepy. And then I'd start to notice the butterflies, and the caterpillars. Um, and then I need to pee. Then I get hungry and my brain's just racing like a lunatic. And I'm desperate for the end. I'm sure my phone is broken and it will never ring. And it's an eternity. But when the alarm beep, 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 beep actually did go, my feeling was of disappointment uh, rather than relief that I'd been rescued. And the, no, the thought of doing a second hour would have been far simpler. So I found it a very 
good experience, interesting experience to spend time with myself. And I'd recommend anyone to try that even for five minutes, 10 minutes, something like that. Um, there's some quotes, I'm sure you'll know it from your commonplace book about mankind's problems stem from not being able to spend time in a room on your own or something, isn't it? We basically, we, mm. something along those lines. Yeah, I think a French guy. I forget which yeah, era. Yeah, it was a that, French guy, wasn't it? Yeah. Didn't he yeah. write a book called A Journey Around My Room or something? Yeah, I quoted that in my new book, The Vagabond's Way. There's a, a different M- French Maitre. guy. He, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ali Meza, I think. Mm. Um, and he was he was uh he was under house arrest. He had to he had to um he was confined to this room. He was he was a rich guy, so he had nice house arrest. And uh, so he decided to shake his fist at his situation by writing a book called A Journey Around My Room. Um, mm. And then there's another guy, I think, Bern Stiegler. He wrote a book called um, Room Journeys, a more recent book, just the idea of not setting limits on what can constitute a journey. Um, and mm. actually... I will. Uh, I'll send that as a challenge to my listeners. Yeah, guys, just sit at, for five minutes or an hour or whatever and do nothing. And I would like again. I would want to take a notebook and write down all, all the great ideas that flew into my head. But that's. I might have to try that. I might have to start with five minutes because just sitting there and not being able to take notes, not being able to check headlines or read a book or you know talk to somebody. That's quite the challenge. Yeah, I mean sitting. Sitting on a log in a wood with a notebook would be like my ideal day. I'd love that. That'd be great. Mm. But without one's hard. There's another book on that notion called um, An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris by Georges Perec. And he sits in a cafe in Paris and just tries to write everything he sees. And of course, at first he's like, oh, this is boring. There's nothing to see. And then he's like, actually, there's so much. And his head essentially explodes that once you start to pay attention, there is just so much everywhere. Yeah, and in fact, on that note, I'm going to circle back to the idea of this of the urban fringe, of of the idea of the edges of places that are settled and are not settled, can have some surprises, or at least it it sounds like you found more wildlife in the urban fringe than you expected to find. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the um, I think the edge lands are they're often quite derided, certainly in Britain, as being sort of ugly and anonymous and soulless and. Um, and there's no there's no defenders of them. There's no sort of campaign saying let's defend these areas or people championing them. They're just forgotten, and therefore they're often left alone. And although I got quite demoralised about the state of industrial farming, one of the main causes of hope I had over this year was around the notion of rewilding. So. Rewilding can be deliberate, you know, taking a bit of farmland out of use and replanting trees, for example, which is important for nature and for carbon and all that sort of good stuff. But what I found really, and I love the notion of rewilding, it's good. I'm very excited by it on a small and huge scale. But what I liked about the Edgelands was that just left to them, left to its own devices, these like an old parking lot or something gradually starts to crack and break and the greenery starts to come through. And it reminds me that if if we just do nothing for nature, if we just step back and stop ruining it all for a while, then it returns and it regrows. And and that I found very encouraging and uplifting. So uh, yeah, I really liked walking around broken down, abandoned, forgotten places and seeing the uh, birds beat, loads of bees, uh, birds buzzing around, foxes. And fox is about the most exotic wild animal you get in Britain. So it's great to see 
foxes. I'd see foxes pretty much every week in these sorts of places. Um, and yeah, it's just, I find it hopeful and uplifting that this ugly landscape is becoming beautiful again, simply by just stepping back and leaving it to itself. Uh, you mentioned the DMZ in Korea. There's also um, the um, East Germany, East-West Germany line that became very green. And then famously a uh, Chernobyl after the nuclear uh, explosion, that's been left alone for 30 odd years. And if you look at photos of it on the internet now, it's wonderful. It's an absolutely beautiful um, woodland, really. Yeah. And I think this ties into the idea of time. It doesn't take that much time for an old golf course or an old military demilitarized zone to go back to a kind of nature um, and just to, to suddenly have wildlife in a place that uh, that you wouldn't guess would have had wildlife. There's also time in the idea of sitting still for an hour and not taking notes or not mm -hmm. watching anything. And so it felt like there was a strong vein of time through your project because you actually experienced the seasons, you know, that there's something uh, a different, a, a journey at, you know, when at the end of the winter is different from a journey at the end of the summer. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how the seasons affected the landscapes you experienced near home? Yeah, um, I quite often spend when it when it's a rainy old winter British day. I spend a lot of time thinking, "Oh man, I wish I lived in Costa Rica or Ecuador or somewhere like that." Uh, but what I really like about living at the latitude of Britain is the seasons, you know, the real change that comes and goes. And by entire coincidence, I started my book in November, so around about now. So we Britain was. At the moment, it looks quite nice. The leaves are all yellow and orange and they're falling off the trees. It's quite pretty, but it is also quite wet and muddy and grey and it's starting to get dark early. So I started the book now and I'm glad I did because my early enthusiasm for the project helped get me out every week as Britain just slides into the grey, dreary, cold misery of December, January, February. And my enthusiasm for the project started to wane by about the end of February. It's like, oh man, will it ever stop raining? Will it ever not be grey? And then just when I think I cannot take this anymore, I need to buy a single ticket to Bali. Then you start to notice the first green shoots coming. And then the first little flower, the primrose, the primrose, the first flower of the year and the snowdrops, the little white snowdrops. And I enjoyed then Googling the mythology and learning all these stories from different cultures about why snowdrops are the first flowers to come out in in February time. And then, yes, spring comes. And, oh, thank goodness. That gives me a bit of hope. And then um, it's still a bit cold and depressing. And then you get to May and you get a little bit of warmth and that just think, ah, oh, fantastic. So these changing seasons is something that, of course, I've always enjoyed, but I've never really noticed before. And an example of that is if you'd asked me before this year to list my months in favorite order. And I think that might be a good exercise for people to try when they're sitting on the logs, just mentally rank the months in favorite order. And I realized that I would have put April pretty low down the list of, oh, that's kind of wet and spring and not very nice. In reality, when I was paying attention every week, I realized that in England or the, the latitude of England where I live, April is where the magic happens. This is when, wow, the world comes back to life. So I loved April for the first time in my life. And my hope now is that because I've paid attention this year, that next year when April comes around, I'll be ready for it. I'll be ready for the hawthorn, uh, the blossom to arrive. And I'll be excited and, and more observant and therefore hopefully more appreciative of it. So yeah, April definitely went up my monthly rankings through this process of paying attention to the seasons. It feels like you also got an intuitive 
appreciation for why we celebrate equinoxes and solstices, why we have for certain festivals at certain times of year. Yeah, just by um, the the nature of my random Googling and learning about stuff. So I was interested in the, the equinoxes when daylight and nighttime are the same. They're sort of spring and uh, in autumn in the fall. And then the, the solstices, so the longest, brightest day of the year and the shortest, darkest day of the year. And I was interested to read about the the history of those. And it made me imagine if I was living in Britain a few thousand years ago in my little mud hut, how terrifying it would have been when the day when the days got darker and colder and you felt maybe the sun will disappear forever and you could see then why people would light bonfires to bring some light and warmth into their society and maybe to urge their gods to bring back the sun to them and though that notion of winter lights then moved on through the ages and little by little we end up with the Christmas fairy lights that we put up today. So I found the, and the same with the Easter, the, the, the um, connections between the, say the Easter rabbit and spring and rebirth and fertility uh, leading to then onto pagan festivals, onto Christian ones and how a lot of our cultural things we take for granted have been there for thousands of years um, through the Celtic um, and Druid backgrounds that I knew nothing about any of that before. So, so that again, helped me connect, I suppose, a little bit with my culture as well as with the the nature outside the window. Yeah. It feels like stepping outside helps you understand these historical festivals a little bit more when you, when you can feel those seasons changing a little bit more specifically, you use a word, I think it's from the old English and I'm going to pronounce it wrong. It's dusk. How do you say it? Duskowing. I've absolutely no idea how to say it. Old English, okay. you know, hasn't been spoken here for 800 years. So, yeah. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes since neither of us can pronounce it. But can you describe yeah. what it means? Well, go on, have your best stab at the pronunciation and we'll go with that. Because actually, you know, your your accent's more Old English than mine, isn't it? Mm. So they say. So uh, tell tell us how an Englishman would have said it a few hundred years ago in your best Kansas accent. Well, this, the, the one challenge here is that um, I'm not only going up against my lack of Old English, but I'm also going up against my own handwriting. Dasiawang. 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 Sounds like something for a Chinese restaurant. Right. I'm just going to leave all that stuff in. It's, okay. it's very multisyllabic and, and uh, doesn't, is sort of a strange old English word. But I guess it means a consideration of the dust. Dasiawang. Uh, and so why did you include that term in, in, <laughs> in this book? Well, I, I think the, um, the passing of the seasons you cannot help but to reflect on the passing of time and then passing of one's own time. And I think this this year was also a helpful exercise for me in trying to figure out my own life a little bit. So I've moved from being big, crazy adventure guy to, I don't know, what am I now? I'm this guy wandering around the little local grid squares. What does that mean for my career, for my work, for my writing for my life. Who who am I now? What do I want to become? Um, so I think the notion of me trying to pay close attention to a grid square, forcing myself to sit on a log every so often, using this Seek app to take photographs of random little flowers to learn the names was all part of trying to make me just slow down and be a bit more in the present, in the moment, and just to accept who I am now and where I live now and that this is my life now. It could be better. It could be a heck of a lot worse, but it's this is what it is. So just accept it for what it is. So I spent quite a bit of time trying to make myself just sit under a tree, drink my 
cup of coffee that I'd bring with me in my backpack and just to appreciate that this is enough, this little suburban wood in springtime or winter or in the pouring rain. Jeez, it rains a lot in England. This is enough. And uh, and that I think that was a quite helpful aspect of the whole experience, something that I wouldn't get from my former journeys, which were about going hard and fast from A to B with no weakness allowed. So it was a very different sort of journey. It was a journey without going anywhere in a way. I think there's some also some imaginative time travel that I felt in your account. I mean, that you'll be walking through ruins or cemeteries and suddenly that that makes you consider the human textures of the past. You can think about rewilding or the post-human landscape and suddenly you're thinking about a, a version of the future. So how did that time travel manifest itself in this project? <laughs> well, England is a good place for having old stuff in, and and it 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 wears it wears its age lightly and um i really like that aspect of england or of europe i suppose or the 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 um, the old world that, that every single week i'd see churches that were 500 years old houses that are 600 years old they're all over the place and you'd kind of take that for granted. And I, I think we sometimes in Britain might have a tendency to tease America, gently tease American tourists for being amazed at the oldness of stuff. But, you know, old things are really fascinating if you just stop and think about it. So, um, for example, there's a little church I found in a valley. It's a, a lot, a, what's called a lost village. When when there was the um, the Black Death in about four or 500 years ago, it's like the covid of 400 years ago and almost half the population of Europe died from this and it led to thousands of villages being completely abandoned and all that remains of this one little lost village on the map where I live is a very small single room old church which had been abandoned since before Columbus sailed across the sea towards America and it fascinates me to just think in all those hundreds of years it's just sat silent empty watching the seasons go round and round and round. And then one day I appear on my bicycle. So I love that connection with the oldness of things. And then I think my focus on just trying to learn about this random little flower and get really interested in this one flower that I'd never even heard of until I looked it up on Wikipedia also got me interested in the very opposite of, geez, this small little flower in this little map in this small country of England, in this small continent of Europe, in this little planet of Earth, in this small little solar system, in this tiny corner of the galaxy, I found myself often ricocheting off into thoughts of just how enormous the, the universe was. And I kept finding myself visiting the Instagram page for the um, James Webb telescope, which is NASA's new super duper telescope camera. It's way better than the Hubble one, which, and the Instagram page is full of beautiful pictures. And when you read the technical scientific explanations, it's, oh, this is a picture of five trillion galaxies taken seven billion years ago. And the sort of size and scale and beauty of this enormity, whilst I'm just sitting in a muddy field looking at a little flower, I mean, the, the hugest and the smallest sort of blew my head quite a bit. So... Um, yeah, I like I liked the pause to think small and big and old and young. I think that's one one benefit of this, and it, it, it occurs to me that there's something a little bit childlike about that. That when you're a kid, you're you're amazed by the the, the dates on the cemeteries or the the empty factory 
or just staring up into the sky and having recently learned how far away the moon and the stars are. <laughs> um, and so I think sometimes that return to childhood can just be as simple as just wandering around without being too dependent on our technology for a while. Absolutely. I mean, there's, what I was doing a lot of the time is what I think anyone who's been a parent of a three-year-old or a two-year-old will be aware of when you're trying to walk somewhere and the little kid just insists on getting down on their knees and looking at the ants walking across the pavement. And you're, and you're like, hurry up, kid. I need to get home and send some emails. And the kid's like, whoa, this universe is miraculous. So yeah, it's, and you you chose the right word. You said childlike rather than childish. It's a, it's a really good thing, which I think us adults, it's, we just become so boring and so obsessed with sending emails i mean is that really the best we can do with this one wild and precious life as one of my patron saints might have said so yeah i think that notion of um of the childlike wonder is is really important and then so you also you said something then about uh leaving the technology behind i think that the idea of although i i had these apps that helped me learn about the nature i really really strongly would not allow myself to check emails while walking around the map or even listen to music because I just wanted to just appreciate this as being enough for today. So you, you carried out this experiment for a year. What, what are your, uh, what were your major uh, take-homes when you got back? What did you learn and how did it, does it change the way you walk through the world? Well, it's changed the way I walk through my local environment because I've spent a lot of time complaining that I live in a boring suburban landscape, but actually it's far greener and more varied than I'd ever imagined. And there are so many footpaths and woodlands that I'd never been to in my life before. So there is plenty of scope for adventure and exploration close to home. So that I got very enthused about that. I got pretty down about the state of nature. Britain is one of the most nature-depleted countries on the planet, but also our society is incredibly disconnected from nature. And if we have a society that's disconnected from nature, let alone the problems that causes for mental health, physical health, poor diet, and just a lack of joy in life, leaving those aside, if people don't care about nature, then they don't care about the bigger scale of, geez, this planet is in big trouble and we need to vote for uh, governments will care for and fix these things. So I got quite down about that, but it's much better to get upbeat about things. So I also got upbeat about the possibilities for, hey, I can actually get my teeth into trying to bring about some change here. And maybe this is a thing that I care about, which gives me more meaning and purpose than just yet another middle-class white man having a huge adventure and showing off about how tough he is. So for listeners who might be interested in, in having their own adventures close to home, where should they start? Um, how do they find a way to have a year's worth of adventures in their 20 kilometer by 20 kilometer square around their home? Well, I'd say the first thing to do is to um, get your local map. And every country has um, different mapping agencies, but the, um, the, the 1 to 24,000 topo series in America, uh, if you Google that, you'll find that. And you can either buy them in paper or from the US government website, you can download it and then print it yourself. So first thing to do is get a map of where you live and then try and adopt a traveler's mindset. So imagine if you were looking, if someone gave you a map of 
Mongolia or Bolivia or Buenos Aires, you'd look at it like, wow, this is exciting. I want to go explore it. So you have to get your local map and try and have that same sort of attitude of curiosity. And then maybe close your eyes, wiggle your finger around, press point and just go to that spot there. And then when you get there, just slow down and try and take some photographs and work out what interests you. For me, it was about the nature and the land use. For you, it might be the the history or the birdsong or the colours of the clouds. Who knows? Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's about finding something that really interests you and diving deeper into that. But the most important thing is just to actually do this. Don't just listen and think, oh, that's quite a fun idea. I'll do it one day. No, do it today in your lunch break or certainly this weekend. Go somewhere. I can guarantee that within five miles of your front door is somewhere you've never been before. Go there for the first time and you are being an explorer. And I think that's a pretty exciting way to be able to be a traveler and also have a day job and a home. It occurs to me that this is one way to fight the robots, to, to push back against the algorithms that tell us what we should do compulsively, is to get a paper map and just l- put ourselves out in the elements. That that might be our last uh, hope in, in the science fiction sense. Yes, and also I think a robot would look at you like, what on earth are you doing? That makes no actual sense. And you say, no, it's about enthusiasm and curiosity and joy and wonder and all the things that the robots cannot yet do better than us. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Alistair Humphrey's new book, Local, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. 